Welcome to Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. We are joined by Professor Menachem Kellner. With a PhD from Washington University, Professor Menachem Kellner is the chair of the Philosophy and Jewish Thought Department at Shalim College. An expert in medieval Jewish philosophy and modern Jewish thought, Kellner taught at the University of Haifa for 33 years. Among other positions at the university, he acted as chair of the Department of Maritime Civilizations and Dean of Students and held the Sir Isaac and Lady Edith Wolfson Chair of Religious Thought. He has been a visiting professor at the Sorbonne and at Northwestern University. Author of 23 books and well over 100 scholarly articles, Kellner has twice been shortlisted for the National Jewish Book Award. Two of his translations of classic texts have appeared in the Yale Judaica series. Without further ado, Professor Kellner. Got it. Thank you for joining the Judaism Demystified podcast. In the opening chapter of your book, Maimonides' Confrontation with Mysticism, you characterize the vision and values of Maimonides promoted in his understanding of Judaism, as well as the cultural climate he campaigned against. Can you outline for us the Maimonidean vision of Judaism, as well as the cultural context he found himself trying to uproot? Okay. <laughs> I like to uh, tell my students that uh, Alevi was such a great prophet that he foresaw the Rambam. Maimonides. Can I say, can you say Rambam? You can say whatever you want. Well, our, our, our audience understands both. So that's yeah, okay, fine. Uh, that uh, Halevi wrote the Kuzari against Rambam. Now, it's, I'm not serious about that. You know, historically, it's not the case. But mm-hmm. if you ask me what was the kind of Judaism that uh, Rambam was seeking, seeking to uproot, I would say to a very great extent it was the Judaism which <laughs> we find in Halevi's Kuzari. With a lot of other things, but uh, the if the, the point of the book that, uh, that you just mentioned is to say that the, uh, the a good way to understand what Rambam is trying to do is to fight against elements in the Jewish tradition, which later on, afterwards, uh, sort of so to speak, came out from the subterranean uh, rivers in which they had flowed flowed for a long time out into the public, and the Rambam was seeking to to fight those those elements of uh, of the tradition that had developed to his day, and that that's a good way of seeing a lot of things that he does. And so in the book, I think that you mentioned is I think seven chapters, and they all revolve around this idea. Now, what is the idea? What is he trying to uproot? Well, uh, briefly, uh, Rambam was a rationalist uh, in the sense that. Uh, well, he followed Aristotle in the accepting the definition of human beings as rational animals. Apparently, uh, the genus of which we are members is animals, mosquitoes, octopi, whatever you want. But what's the specific difference which distinguishes us from all the other animals is the fact that we can be rational. Now, the moment you adopt that definition of what a human being is, you are committed to a wide variety of positions that people like Yehuda Levi and, and afterwards Kabbalah, which is much more extreme than Alevi ever was, um, uh, you're committed to, to views that these, these streams would, would reject. 
It's, this underlies Rambam's extreme universalism. The Torah says that God created human beings in the image of God, and the Torah wasn't kidding. That's Rambam's view, I think. That, 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 that's like his universalism, namely that human beings are human beings. And uh, as opposed to Halevi and Kabbalah and Hasidut and most of my fellow Orthodox Jews today, there is nothing that distinguishes Jews from Gentiles up front. There's no ontological, mystical, spiritual, there's nothing. There's not the Inyan Elohi of, of Halevi. There's not a, uh, the Pintle Yud in Yiddish. There's not the Nishama Yehudit. They're just human beings. And Jews are distinguished from non-Jews by, not by, the, my, my friend Danny Lasker from New York University likes to use the following analogy. Uh, Rambam distinguishes human being, Jews from non-Jews by their software, not by their hardware. Yudha hmm. Levy distinguishes Yudha Levy and afterward, after him, again, I emphasize he's much more moderate than what happened afterwards. Levy distinguishes Jews from non-Jews by virtue of their hardware. It's something built in. And now, this one does make a lot of sense to guy. You guys are too young to realize this, but when computers, for, personal computers first came out, everybody wanted to get the best possible computer, which was built by IBM. Uh, and other computers were considered clones. And they weren't as good. They didn't even run that well. Uh, but it was always easy. Once you bought an IBM computer, you could change the software easily. You buy, buy a new program, and install it, and you've got the, the same machine. The hardware is running, but a different program. That's a useful way of understanding what, uh, Rambam's universalism. Human beings all are the same hardware. But there's a program called Torah that Jews run. But anybody who runs that program is there by definition a Jew, which is why Rambam makes conversion, relatively speaking, simple and possible. Look, in Hale for, for Halevi, conversion really isn't possible. Uh, what you can become is, a, uh, in effect, a second-class Jew. You will never attach yourself to the uh, Inyan Elohi. You will never achieve prophecy. These are all theoretical differences for Levi. He, he, you know, there weren't a lot of prophets running around in his day either. But all these are elements of Rambam's universalism, which I think are a function of his acceptance of A, the Torah, and in this case, Aristotle's definition of what a human being is. So this is like one aspect of... <laughs> pardon me. Bless. One aspect of the world, uh, the Jewish world that Rambam was fighting against. Now, the ironic thing is that by making these positions so clear and so emphatic, Rambam raised against him all kinds of uh, all kinds of well, we'll just put it this way: <laughs> Rambam's emphatic universalism and rationalism, in effect, promoted the rise of Kabbalah. Right now, just. I'll give you one more example of uh, what we're talking about here. According to Yudha Levi, the world was created by God using the Hebrew language. And the Torah says that, right? By Yor, God yeah. spoke, as it were. And in what language did he speak? It wasn't Yiddish, it wasn't Marokaid, it wasn't uh, Parsi, it was Hebrew. So Levi is convinced that the Hebrew language is unique among all languages. And it is uniquely fit for communicating spiritual uh, 
ideas and thoughts and communication with God. Prophecy takes place in Hebrew by people who speak Hebrew properly, uh, without an American accent like I have. And um, that uh, no other language is as perfect as Hebrew is. Now, Rambam thinks that languages are languages. Now, this is a debate that goes back to the, the Greek philosophers, Plato and Aristotle, in, in various ways of making this point. But there are those who thought that language is natural and those who thought that it was conventional. Alevi thinks that uh, Hebrew is a natural language. It was created by, uh, by God and implanted in uh, Adam Arishan, the first Adam. Rambam thinks that Hebrew is a conventional language. He goes so far as to say, why is Hebrew called the holy language? Because there are no words in it for disgusting things. All right, it's not vulgar. It's not vulgar. It's, vict it's very Victorian. Now, Ramban, Nachmanides, thinks that's crazy, and there's a long passage in his commentary on the Torah where he brings all kinds of examples of the Hebrew, Hebrew being vulgar. <laughs> but in any event, uh, I like to point out that uh, one, of the, one of the ways in which Rambam's vision is useful to us, and uh, hopefully, hopefully I'm speaking for you guys as well, uh, is that Biblical Hebrew is, in contemporary terms, an extremely chauvinist language. Um, I don't want to give, uh, go into examples because some of them are, are vulgar. <laughs> hmm. but, but think of the Hebrew word for female and what it means. Or for that matter, husband which is the same thing as owner, master, and Canaanite God. Uh, I want to give you many, many more examples. If you buy into the Halevi slash Kabbalah slash Hasidut slash contemporary Orthodox view of Hebrew as a divine language, it's very hard not to be a misogynist. Uh -huh. And uh, among all the medieval, not that the Ramam was anything was not a contemporary feminist by any means, but he thought that women were created in the image of God, which in his day was not commonly accepted. Uh, my good friend, I believe you've been here shown, Ralbag, 1288 to 1344. Uh, didn't read Darwin, of course, but if you recall, when Darwin published The Origin of, the Origin of Species, people said, okay, you claim that uh, we are descended from apes, but we have apes and we have human beings. Where's the connecting link? And people spoke about the missing link between apes and human beings. Rabat found the missing link between apes and human beings, women. Hmm. So this is, this is an example of the kind of thought. I'm not saying that Halevi or the or every Mikubal holds that view, but it was certainly common in the Middle Ages. And Rabat clearly rejected it. So these are many of the examples of the way in which uh, the Judaism which he confronted uh, was a Judaism which was not rationalist in the sense that it believed in kind of mystical illumination. Uh, for Halevi, you, you had to be able to contact, so to speak, what he called the Inyan Elohi, the divine something. Uh, and um, if you didn't speak Hebrew, you couldn't really speak to God or hear God back. And, and by Hebrew, he means biblical Hebrew, not the Hebrew, not of the Mishnah, certainly not of uh, the medievals. Uh, so that uh, it forces Jews into a, um, a kind of hyper-particularism, which is very common these days. Can I give one more example? Sure. sure. 
Okay, uh, this is something which I was I, I was aware of in the book, but I've become ever more aware of it uh, since uh, I've gone on to other things. It turns out there's a machloket, a controversy in rabbinic literature over the nature of halacha of Jewish law. Uh, are the specific commandments? Do they reflect some kind of antecedent ontological reality? Or do they create social reality? Look, uh, you have two hot dogs, and one is kosher and one is strafe. You should, in principle, be able to develop a machine like a Geiger counter that would enable you to distinguish between them. Because the kosher hot dog is kosher not because of the laws of kashrut, but because the universe is built such that this is kosher. A better example, perhaps, is the whole notion of ritual purity and impurity, Tarabatuma. Uh, I like to tell my students that if we, if we can invent, could invent a Tumamu Meter, a Geiger counter that discovers Tumah, then according to most Jews today, if you had the wand go over, I don't know, something that's Tameh impure, it would go click, 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 click. Now, it's, I think it's fairly easy to show Rambam didn't accept any of these things. Halakha is what we would call today a game, a serious game, but it has rules. And the rules could have been different. That's the most important thing. It could have been different if Jewish history had been different. Um, I can give you endless examples, but I'll give you a simple one. Uh, observant Jews do not wear clothing made of Linen and wool, right? Shatnez. Why not? Because uh, pagan pagan priests would exactly. wear this. Exactly. Yes. yes. Because that would not have happened. Yeah. Because pagan priests wore linen and wool specifically. Now, had they worn polyester as opposed to linen and wool, then according to Rambam, Shatnez would be permissible, but polyester would not be. Correct. Yeah. And therefore, this goes against so many views that we're familiar with from our communities. <laughs> that how, now, this is not to say that Rambam didn't observe the laws carefully. He took it very seriously. His, you might say, philosophy of mitzvot is different from the people around him. But this is also a function of the fact that you don't have to be Jewish to do these things. You don't have to have a Jewish soul. You have to accept the rules of the game and play according to them. And that has obviously has important social consequences. It's not as if nothing happened. Uh, you, I keep getting on. I'll go on one more example about this. You can, you can go on with endless examples if you'd like. You know, there's no rush. I don't want to get, you know, you, the three of us, you two and me, have been subjected to lots of rabbinic sermons over the years. And rabbis have a tendency not to know when to finish. I'm sure you've seen that happen a lot. I don't want to be I don't want to be guilty of that myself. But let's say you inadvertently violate a law, a halakha. Now, in certain cases, you have to bring a sacrifice called a korban shkaga. Okay, say yes. Yes. Yep. Thank you. <laughs> now. Why do you have to bring a Korban Shkaga? Ramban, Rimoshev and Nachman, Nachmanides says, it's because if a Jew sins, it damages her soul. It's some kind of stain on the soul. 
And by bringing this sacrifice, you manage to cleanse the soul of that stain. Now, Rambam, Maimonides, says uh, the reason why you bring a uh, sacrifice is like why you, you're fined if you go, um, in your case, if you speed on the Long Island Expressway. Right. You're too busy to do anyway. But let's say you speed on the Long Island Expressway, you get a ticket, and you pay for the ticket. And why, why, why are you paying? What is the ticket meant to do? To penalize you to, to not do it again. Basically. Exactly. So yes. Rambam says a korban guy is so we will take more care the next time. We had to pay a lot of money. We bought an animal. We had to bring it to the uh, to the mikdash for the temple. So therefore, we're learning our lesson. It's not that there's something that happens to our soul when we sin. We shouldn't sin. But if we do sin, the korban is not there to cleanse the soul. It's to give us an educational experience not to sin again. This is one more example of this entire attitude towards halakha as a series of, uh, you might call them institutions. You know, what I've learned since I wrote that book, it came out in two, wow, a long time ago, 2006, I think, <laughs> is that this machloket between Rambam and Sehalevi, or Rambam and Kabbalah, or Rambam and Kasidu, or Rambam, and almost every Orthodox rabbi today, is found already in Chazal, in the rabbinic sages. And there's an awful lot of discussion about that in the scholarly world today, trying to uh, uh, argue that some of the some Chazal uh, agree in effect with Rambam and, and others agree in effect with Yudah Levi. It's interesting to point out that one of the most important scholars dealing with this subject is herself not Jewish, Christine Hayes from Yale University. Oh, we love her. We love her. Yeah. We want her on. We so, haven't been able to. <laughs> I'll be seeing her. Uh, in June, there's some kind of con uh, an issue here in Jerusalem where we're both we're judging something together. Uh, in any event, I'll try and push the idea. Of, she's oh, very fine. Please, please. Speak of Jerusalem, Mr. She's a very <laughs> fine scholar, and she's one of the important people dealing with the subject in terms of Chazal. I thought this was a machloket, a, a controversy just in the Middle Ages. I didn't realize it goes way back into uh, rabbinic literature. Anyway. So that's like, you asked me one question, the world that the Rambam came from and that he was trying to, I would say, purify, disenchant. Okay, so I wanted to ask a couple of things, or um, it's actually the, you brought in uh, the institution of halacha, which was actually going to be the second question, but you sort of went into it already. Right. So I'm just going to ask you a bunch of things around what you said already. Um, can you... You gave the prime example of Halevi, which is the most pronounced one. Uh, but could you also let our viewers know what other kind of proto-Kabbalistical elements uh, were around and extent at the time besides Halevi? I would say something like, say, for Yitzira. Oh, well, for sure. Well, okay. Now I understand the question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, what, what other uh, things were floating around okay. at those times that can be considered... Uh, part of what the Rambam was trying to approve. Okay. Besides well, Rambam, Halevi's ideas. Yeah, there's a very, it's an important scholarly question. It's also a Jewish question. <laughs> About the nature of a series of texts which we call Sifruta uh, Echalot, Echalot literature. Uh, these are uh, texts which aren't, Actually, become they were known to uh, the Hasidic Ashkenaz in the Middle Ages, uh, and very little known before them and after them. 
Uh, and these are texts which allegedly reflect the views of Tanaim and Amoraim. Um, there are very few places in the in the Talmud where these issues are sort of like hinted at, like the uh, the whole story of Arbanif de Sula Pardes four entered the mystical garden with uh, Rabbi Akiva Mizoma ben Azai and Elisha ben Abuya. That's one of the few places where it comes up in the in the Talmud. But uh, if the Hechalot were actually written by, or if the people who quoted there are actually Tanaim and Amoraim, then certainly Judaism has an element that uh, uh, is involved with that. Rambam himself quotes a text called Shi'ur Koma, which it, it quotes it, he's a young man, but he's an older man. He says, I never for a moment believed this was a serious text. So that's something people can play with. Um, but Shi'ur Koma <laughs> describes the God's physical body in amazingly exaggerated terms. But the most important text is one Rambam never knew about, namely Zohar. Uh, my wife is a I married a nurse and discovered I was married to a librarian at one point <laughs> and uh, she, uh, she came from Long Island by the way <laughs> oh really <laughs> yeah. in any event um, so I like, the, I like to take the library example uh, I knew her as a librarian more than I knew her as a nurse I think. in any event uh, the library at the University of Haifa has a lot of Jewish books, and they're arranged according to the uh, the, uh, the cataloging system of the Library of Congress. And according to that system, you have books which belong to rabbinic literature and books which belong to medieval literature. Where do you put the Zohar? Medieval. I'm not asking you a question, right? Rhetorical. <laughs> I, know you know I know you know the answer. <laughs> but <laughs> the people around Rambam, or later, a little bit later on, once they discovered the Zohar, those who thought, thought, thought it was author authoritative and authentic thought it should be shelved with the uh, rabbinic literature. Now, if Rambam had lived another hundred years and had seen the Zohar, he would have said, well, it should be shelved with science fiction. But if we can't put it there, we should at least put it with contemporary medieval literature. <laughs> so uh, then there are other books that were floating around, Sefer Abahir, for example, Sefer Yitzirah, you mentioned a lot of books which were floating around. And we don't really know who wrote them, where and when. Uh, but they were all books which can be characterized as mystical and later on as Kabbalistic or as sources for Kabbalah. Uh, but you ask, I can't, I can't point to texts or books. My argument is that Rambam was fighting against things which had not yet crystallized into, into literature. The, the notion of the, the hyper-particularistic view of, who, of what a Jew is, the notion of a Jewish soul, the notion of Hebrew as a as a natural or divine language, the idea of what prophecy consists in, the idea of what angels are, uh, I don't remember the other things that come up in the book, but these were all ideas that were floating around that he felt the need to fight against. It was, it was kind of the, it was... It was the underground. It was the underground, but it was, it was the, the common people were kind of assuming these concepts and kind of their service of God was in this, in this fashion. I assume that that's the case, yes. But let's be fair to the common people. 
of whom we are all of us, by the way. But yeah, for sure, being a Rambamian Jew is hard. It makes demands of you, many demands, and doesn't offer you comfort. And the way in which the knowledge that if, if you buy into, let's take a contemporary example, okay? The Ashkenazi, so-called Lithuanian and Hasidic yeshiva world, but mostly the Lithuanian yeshiva world, buys into a book called Nefesh Akayim by Chaim Voloshner, a student of the Gra. Now, according to this book, Jews learn Torah, i.e. Gemara and Yiddish. That's the idea of what learning Torah is to a very great extent, especially six Masechto. In any event, um, <laughs> and when you do that, you accomplish things in the world. And the upper worlds. Exactly. Why do you accomplish things in the world? Because you're affecting the upper worlds. Right. And that affects this world. See if it's theurgical. Right. Now, that's very comforting. Um, that means that a, uh, shall we say, uh, someone who works in the garment district in Midtown Manhattan, in Davins Minchad, with Kavana, has a greater impact on the universe than Putin and Zelensky and and uh, and Biden together. And they operate on a very thin, superficial level, whereas the guy from the garment district who's diving Minka, losing time from work in order to dive Minka, uh, is actually affecting them. But through his work on the upper levels, he's affecting what goes on in this world. Correct. Um, I heard someone told me that the first Lubavitcher Rebbe was asked, why did God allow Napoleon to function and the answer was so we would have marches to sing to <laughs> now i don't know if that's a true story or not but it it reflects this idea that uh what the goyim do is like uh unimportant in the final analysis what's important is jews fulfilling its vote because that's what really keeps the world going I don't right. think Rambam held that he thought it was right. important to fulfill its vote but i don't think he thought they had any kind of mystical or magical or supernal or whatever words you want impact on the world they had a lot of look clearly he Rambam felt that a person who keeps the mitzvot is a better human being than someone who doesn't and a society of people who keep the mitzvot is a better society and that such a society has a greater chance of making possible human beings to reach their real level of perfection which is understanding the truth so actually, what you mentioned before with regarding um, Shir Koma, um, Rambam, he said you should burn this book. So when you say you should burn it, he just says it's nonsense. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. It's nonsense. Um, so the same thing. I, can you elaborate a little bit on the Zohar for the people who don't understand, um, you know, the history of it and how, you know, it was, it was, okay. uh, quote unquote, revealed by Moshe de Leon and what right. exactly happened there? Um, because what, what, true historians will point out is that Rambam actually just lit the match um, that set all these, you know, Kabbalistic movements in, in motion. Exactly. Yeah. That, I think that's the ironic consequence of Rambam's austere demanding vision of Judaism. It causes a reaction. The, the, the reaction was to take things which I believe were sort of like bubbling underground 
I mean, I don't know for a fact, but uh, th that seems more likely than that Moshe de Leon, out of blue, out of nowhere, created all this whole world of thought, especially since the, the you might say, the, the Zohar structure reflects a philosophical school called Neoplatonism, which also impacted a lot on the Rambam. So there were, these ideas were all over the place. So the Zohar is not a book. It's a collection of texts. Um, which were didn't coalesce into a book until it was printed for the first time. I'm not good with dates, but I think in the obviously after 1460, the invention of printing, but sometime in the early 1500s, uh, it was printed, and that's it's like the Gemara. People cite the Zohar according to page numbers from that from that edition. So there was that edition which created and if it made it into a book. A lot of scholarship about that. The, I'm not that I'm really too interested in the details, but people whom I know and respect are talking a lot these days about how the Zohar became coalesced into a, a physical entity that you could put on a shelf. And the Zohar is not a, a work which has any kind of um, system. It's not a systematic work. Correct. It's a kind of, to a very great extent, a kind of midrash. Either stories or expositions and extrapolations from verses in the in the in the Bible. Uh, also, stories about uh, Rabbi Shun Bar Yochai and his friends and colleagues and students. Uh, the the world of the Zohar, if I may speak in just grandiose terms, is a very non-Maimonidean world. I'm about to get into a lot of trouble. My daughter is a non-Maimonidean. Her room is a colossal mess. Rambam is a strong believer in a place for everything and everything in its place. He was also a strong believer in monotheism. He did not like this idea of a world in which there were all kinds of levels between us and God and uh, sort of mediating. I Recently, a very important Queens rabbi doctor, Rabbi Simcha Krauss, passed away. He was living here in Yerushalayim, in Israel, for a long time. And once at his house, I learned something very interesting, which I should have known. He refused to sing <clears throat> the third verse of the uh, Sabbath Eve hymn, Shalom Aleichem. I also he, don't. I also okay. <laughs> So I learned this from Rabbi Krauss that um, it says Baruchuni l'shalom. You address angels and ask them to bless you. And the Rambam would say that's a violation of the, one of the thirteen principles of faith, where you, all prayer is addressed only to God. You don't turn to intermediate things. So the Zohar is a world full of angels who can affect what we do and whom we should propitiate or appeal to, and it's a world full of demons who can do us damage, uh, and that we have to work work carefully so that they don't damage us. Uh, so in effect, it's a it's an enchanted world. It's a messy world, like my daughter's room. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> Luckily, she'll never listen to this podcast. Okay. <laughs> later, later, these ideas of uh, demons and angels it got morphed into the tzaddik. That's in the Hasidut. These things kind of got sanitized a little bit, and it kind of became more about the the the, the tzaddik, right? So 
So the tzaddik can 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 save you, can help you, can can right. bring you towards God. So is a kind of uh, <clears throat> is a a pipe leading between God and you. Yeah, that's not Rambam. Not Talk Rambam. to you. Now I have a Rambam question about a big, Yeah, go ahead. All right. So I wanted to ask you because you're talking about um, the reaction to the Rambam, which led to uh, the crystallization of um, of mysticism. But you make a point in your book that the Rambam had a silent way of going about his critiques on these things, right. yes. which which is interesting to me because the Rambam you you highlight how the Rambam was silent about it in a way how he how he kind of everything was kind of uh, subtle subtle right subtle. yet Absolutely. the reaction was so strong I'm just wondering how you put that together. Well, I guess the answer is he wasn't subtle enough. Okay. <laughs> it was subtle. I mean, he, he tried. I guess you would say he tried to be subtle about it, but it, it, it didn't go. It was go so obvious. The Rambam was not. My wife likes to tell me every time I go teach about Rambam, which is like all the time, she says, remember to tell the students he was also a rabbi. Yeah. <laughs> Not just the philosopher. Sure. Rambam took his role and job as the leading Jew of his day seriously. Uh, if he had put his positions out not subtly, he would have undermined a lot of Jewish practice. Uh, that's why I think he wrote esoterically in the guide. Not to you know, Leo Strauss thinks that Rambam. Uh, and other people like him wrote esoterically to protect themselves from the masses, from other rabbis, basically. But no, I think Rambam wrote esoterically to protect the masses from him. Mm -hmm. uh, a very clear-cut example is as follows. I am convinced, and not alone, I mean, this is a standard scholarly uh, understanding of Rambam, that there is no tit-for-tat reward and punishment. You know, we go to shul on the Yamim Nuraim and we say endless prayers, which in effect we present God as a kind of divine accountant, keeping track of our good deeds and our bad deeds, weighing them up, etc. Okay, that's that for Rambam is like baby Judaism. When we do something right, it's good for us. If we do something bad, it's bad for us and bad for our society. But it's not as if uh, you do something bad and God will write it down. Later on, we'll get back at you, throw a uh, thunderbolt or something. Um, the, the Mishnah says in a vote, schar mitzvah mitzvah, schar vera vera, that the, the reward for a good deed is a good deed, and the punishment for an evil deed is an evil deed. I think that's a good way of expressing Rambam's view. But if, let's say he he went into his neighborhood shul there in Cairo and said to people, please keep the mitzvot, but don't expect to be rewarded for it in any fashion. What would happen? Nobody would do it. Nobody would keep the mitzvot, right? But he was, he wanted it. He was a rabbi. He wasn't just a philosopher. And he thought that keeping the mitzvot was good for those people. Good for him. Good for society. Good for the world. A society ruled by halakha. Uh, not only does Ramam say this, I think he's right. <laughs> Is, uh, is more often than not a just society. I offend him? Well, he's, uh, he's grabbing a book, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm just kidding. 
So that's why Rambam, his esotericism is a function of his desire to protect the simple Jew, whose Judaism is much better than, uh, than nothing. Now, it would be better if all Jews were philosophers, but Rambam was smart enough to know that wasn't going to happen until the days of the Messiah, Yimut Mashiach. That was his definition of Yimut Mashiach, that we would all be philosophers. In effect, he didn't put it that way, okay? So, uh, do you remember what question I'm answering? We're, we're kind of, we synthesized the first and second question. So it's actually okay, as if you answered two questions. Um, what I wanted to ask you on this with halacha and reward, I was trying to find my Sefer Mada, but I think it's upstairs. I believe in Yisodei Torah, if I'm not mistaken, the third or fourth parak. I believe it's the fourth, but I could be wrong. Towards the end, he talks about how one should not be Mitael Bepardes. You, you're familiar with that? Yeah, and sure. Has, yeah, it's so, chapter four, Halakha Yudgevon. Oh, thank you. Okay. That to say? No one's going to go check me, right? So I didn't be... have to go. Okay. <laughs> so so um, he talks about that. And then he talks about how, um, and, and, and for the masses, right? They have uh, Gemara and they have, uh, they have Talmud, right? And they have, in a sense, I don't remember if he actually says the word Halakha, but there's an implication that the Talmud and the and Halakha, and then he says, will, will, is their path to Olam Haba? Okay, if I, I'm not, I was trying to find the exact words. Yeah. That's why I went to look for it. But you probably recall it. Not, not precisely. Although I have it right here, if you want me to go look for it. But the point of that text is, Rambam at the end of chapter two says everything we've discussed in this. Uh, this is uh, is Maaseh Merkava. I think he says, yeah. and then chapters three and four are Maaseh Bereshit. Yeah. which are code words in Rambam's view for metaphysics and physics. Mm -hmm. This he says explicitly in many, many places, including in the uh, introduction to the guide, including the introduction to part three of the guide, in his commentary on Chagiga, chapter two, uh, Mishnah Aleph. This, this is not secret, okay? Uh, so in effect, he's asking, and then he goes on there in that halacha to say that these two issues, Maaseh Bereshit and Maaseh Merkava, are what Chazal called a Davar Gadol, a great, a great issue. Correct. And Havayot uh, Abayim HaRava, the controversies between two rabbinic sages, Abayim HaRava, are what the, what the rabbis called Davar Katan. Yeah. Okay. Uh, in his uh, magisterial work, uh, Introduction to the Code of Maimonides, Yusuf Tversky says, that uh, Rambam makes this point, he says, with crushing literalism. He literally says, Talmudic discussions are Devar Kantan, and the uh, philosophical issues, Maseh Bashit, Maseh Merkavar, Devar Gadol. However, he says, one should not begin with these philosophical issues before one has filled his belly, he says, with bread and meat. Bread and meat being halachot. Correct. Now, and then this... he follows that. He follows that with one other point. He brings olama ba. That's I. I, I, I don't don't recall that precisely, but it could be. But it doesn't make any difference because he thinks that whatever he says, <laughs> he thinks that, and this, you know, this is clearly the case. He thinks that olama ba is a function of achieving a level of intellectual perfection. Right. That's why I'm asking the question. Yeah. 
<laughs> That's exactly I what he says. They are prerequisites to establish a world in which we can hope to. Now I'm interpreting, okay? In which we hope to achieve Olam but he doesn't say that. Um, Not necessarily that itself. Say in order to. Uh, you know, he certainly feels that way. Rambam is very strong on the issue uh, that a prerequisite for intellectual perfection is moral perfection. He didn't think you could be a great scientist or a great philosopher in being a disgusting human being. Albert Einstein was by all accounts a great physicist, but he was not a great family man. Martin Heidegger is thought of as the greatest philosopher of the 20th century, European philosopher of the 20th century, and he was a Nazi. So for Rambam, this could not be. A prerequisite for any kind of intellectual perfection is moral perfection. And for Jews, that's the best way to do that. The only way, but the best way is through the halakha. And therefore, that is why it is a tool. Now, now I want to get to a very important point. Here we see reflected an extremely important point in Rambam's views. Halakha is a tool. Not an end in itself. And like any tool, it's judged by how effective it is in achieving its end. So halakha is a very effective tool. But as a tool, it, 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 it could be changed. Obviously, it was changed. I mean, it, it could have been different is what I mean to say. With the example we had of, of Shatnitz. <laughs> So for Rambam, sure, study Gemara, study Halakha, learn it well, so that you can move on. That's not what he says in, literally in that text, but that's what he means. That's, the inter that's your interpretation of what he's saying. That's what he has to mean to be consistent with 10 other places in his I understand. So in order to make that part of the Mishnah Torah make sense with a lot of other things he says, in the more or letters or whatever, that's how you would have to understand it. In the, also in the previous four, uh, look, the very fact that he says that Havayota uh, uh, the discussions between these rabbinic sages, is a davar katan, small thing, as opposed to studying physics and metaphysics, which is a great thing, shows that I'm not forcing this interpretation upon him. You, you do the small thing in order to bring yourself to the great thing. Right. It's a logical deduction. It's a prerequisite. Prerequisite. Yeah. Again, this is an important point. Uh, and here I'm speaking of purely, everything I've said to this point is obviously true. <laughs> Smile, okay? But <laughs> uh, it reflects my, uh, look, I'm sure you've heard this joke a thousand times. Why is Ramam called Maimonides in English? Because everyone has Maimonides, your Maimonides, her Maimonides. Oh, yeah. It's Benji's we, favorite that's line. That's my favorite line. Yeah. I say it all the time. <laughs> You've been hearing Maimonides, all right? <laughs> yeah. Now, Maimonides is not like often outer space or something. It's fairly standard, fairly conservative, a small c uh, interpretation of Rambam, uh, at least in the academic world. Uh, get, go much more uh, radical than, than I, I feel is correct. I have no idea where I was going with that. <laughs> yeah. But in any event, 
Um, no, no, I'm sorry. I had a brilliant idea, but it just left me. It's okay. it, it might come back as we go on. Yeah. So, oh, all right. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Uh, hey, back. I think Rambam is committed to a view which he wouldn't like. That a halacha is obligatory upon Jews, but it's not necessary to become a perfect human being. And uh, he's committed to that because of his views. Namely, halakha is a tool which enables you to lead a, a moral life in, in a moral society. But does that mean that people outside of the halakhic world can't be moral? Obviously, he didn't think that. Because he thought that Aristotle had reached a level of perfection at the very, very verge of becoming a prophet. So he had to think that Aristotle was a moral human being. He obviously didn't know much about Aristotle or man. But he was committed to the idea that Aristotle al-Farabi, his friend al-Aftal, all these other people whom he admired, could not have been immoral, or they couldn't have been such great philosophers. So I think he is committed to a view that, um, whereas he's certainly in favor of Jews fulfilling mitzvot, uh, he, can't, he can't say without that, no Jew can get into a loma and this solves for him an important problem, I think, which he wasn't aware of. <clears throat> you ever heard of the winnowing, winnowing of hell? The Christian term. Uh, Christians ask, what happened to all the people in the world who lived before Jesus? They had no chance of salvation. Uh, and so the answer is that Jesus went to hell and found all the people who would have believed in him had they existed in his day. Retroactive justice. That's right. That's called the winnowing of hell. <laughs> so uh, if you think that the only way to achieve Olam Abba is through mitzvot, then what happens to the entire universe of human beings? You know, I think the number of Jews alive today doesn't even come to a uh, statistical error in the Chinese census. Right. Yeah, I think uh, anyone who thinks that the only way to achieve some kind of what we would call what the Christians would call salvation, uh, what other religions have other names for. If you think the only way to do that is through Kiyum Mitzvot, you're condemning the vast majority of humanity. Uh, you're left out. Yeah. And I'm not sure that Raman worried about that, but it's an issue that uh, particulars should be worried about. Mm hmm and he yeah, solved just, that he solved that issue without knowing obviously i think so yeah. I think that's good. because if the criterion now remember the criterion for Olama bob for him is hyper i didn't make this point yet he was a super intellectual elitist say yes yes, yes. absolutely <laughs> now his elitism was connected to his universalism in other words the elite doesn't have to be Jewish. You know, like Yehuda Levi distinguished the world like this. Over here are Jews, over here is everybody else. Okay? Now, he thought everybody else could be good people. But they so, certainly are like Subet, uh, whatever the word is in English. Secondary. Now, Levi divided the world, uh, Rambam divided the world this way. Up here is intellectually perfected, and down here is everybody else. Now, the intellectually perfected don't have to be Jews. Many of them would be because he thought the Torah leads to that, but he couldn't, he was not committed to the idea that only Jews were in that level. 
Now, if you were to ask me uh, which of Raman's many views I reject, that would be one of them. I don't think uh, the Jewish tradition, as I know it and love it and grew up in it and as it developed to our day, was an elitist in that fashion. Mm -hmm. But, you know, even Rambam was allowed to be wrong. For sure. Okay. You want to take the next one? Yes. So, segueing off of that large intro, uh, we wanted to talk about uh, the concept of holiness. Holiness has become a buzzword in Judaism today. We use this word loosely and without much thought going into its actual meaning. Today, we attach it to people, places, and objects with a sort of assumed intrinsic quality. In the time of the Rambam, this mistranslation as holiness was a widespread phenomenon as he, as an idea he tried to refine. Can you please explain what holiness meant in the Rambam's time and how he polemicized against these sorts of conceptions? Well, I think that um, you've phrased it very well. Uh, again, taking the, you see, it's easiest to take the example of Yehuda Levi because he was very smart and very non-Maimonidean. <laughs> Uh, so for him, holiness is a um, characteristic. It's out there. In other words, uh, Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, is holy. Brooklyn is not. The North Shore of Long Island even is not. It's only the land of Israel. And within the land of Israel, Jerusalem is holier than the rest of the land of Israel, uh, etc. I don't want to offend any of you people listening to this podcast, but not even Brooklyn is holy. <laughs> so it's important to realize that Rambam denies there's such a thing as intrinsic holiness there are no holy places there are no holy objects there are no holy people There is only he was a real rabbi there is only halakha halakha tells us to treat certain places differently than other places and some of that is a reflection of history. Now, he himself, look, Rambam was, um, couldn't get away from certain things that we're all used to. So um, he doesn't think that it was an accident that, that Eretz Israel is called the Holy Land. But his holiness consists of the fact that there are mitzvot of Yot Baris. There are mitzvot that can only be obeyed there. Uh, the, Look, Chazal tell us, rabbis of the Talmud tell us that when the temple was destroyed in the year 70 of the Common Era by the Romans, God's presence left, first it left the Holy of Holies, then it left the Temple Mount, then it left Jerusalem. Now, Ramam doesn't say that anywhere, but he wouldn't, be, he wouldn't object to saying that as a kind of Midrashic, uh, Agadic expression. But to take it seriously is to... Uh, make the mistake of localizing God. God cannot be localized. And it's making the mistake of seeing uh, some kind of geographical entity as intrinsically distinct from and superior to other geographical entities. Well, let's take Tefillin, okay? We are, we are enjoined to treat Tefillin with great respect. There are halachot about it. But there's nothing about the physical objects, which makes them holy, aside from the halakhot about them. So to, you can't talk about a holy person. 
in the way in which a lot of Jews today would like to talk about it. Right. You can talk about a righteous person, a smart person, a wonderful person, a person with great uh, personal characteristics. And you might want to use holiness as a kind of shorthand, but you have to realize it's just a shorthand. That's another human being. Now, if this human being behaves in the way human beings ought to behave, i.e. morally perfect, intellectually sound, that person deserves a certain amount of respect that other people would get less of. But there's nothing intrinsic about that person. So what do we the mean? The idea that, that Hasidic leaders are tzaddikim and they're distinct from their followers, he would reject entirely. What do we mean, what does the Torah mean when it says Hashem is holy? Well, that I think it's very simple to, um, first of all, the Pasuk says, Kiddoshim to you, Kiddoshani. Kiddoshani. What, are, what do those words mean? Because it should, well, it has to be, has to be symmetrical to us. In terms whatever of they mean, yes. uh, it's something that we can uh, aspire to. Now, Rambam says explicitly that the meaning of that pasuk is fulfill the mitzvot. That, that pasuk is a very good example of how to understand Rambam versus almost everybody else. Most Jews over the last 800 years would say, Kedoshim to you, be holy, is a promise. You will be holy. In other words, the Hebrew is taken as being in the future tense. Oh, Kedoshim clearly Rambam gotcha. clearly sees it in the imperative tense. Sivui. Be holy. In that sense, try to imitate God. What does it mean, be holy? Behave in a certain fashion. It doesn't mean you will become holy like God is holy. That's ridiculous. There's no way that God and human beings can share any aspect, any characteristic. Quality any, of holiness. Quality, exactly. That would that, that, that would be total idolatry in Rambam's eyes. Yeah, I think I think holiness is also like a soiled term from Christianity, because in 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 the traditional Jewish sense, it means to be separated, right? To be separate. Sure, right. God is. It actually makes sense in that context that Hashem is transcendent, and we must also kind of separate ourselves from. Uh, you know the other nations and in our practices we have to make separate the weekday from Shabbat and it's all about sanctification right it's about sanctification of things it doesn't mean that those things are intrinsically holy as we understand it today but it really just means that you know there's distinctions between God and the world and us and certain things that we do very well said absolutely very well said you're good my Monadians <laughs> we're trying <laughs> Yeah. So, okay. So, um, I want to get into a topic that, you know, I'm fascinated by, um, which is angelology. Uh, it's probably the most challenging concept to comprehend. The idea creates problems in various ways from biblical anthropomorphism, intermediaries, independence of a spiritual entity, and so on. How did Rambam reshape the concept of angels in light of the dearth of seemingly mixed messages about angels that pre-existed the Rambam's time. And I'll just explain to people what angels are quickly, shortly, which is that according to the Rambam, that it's um, either visions, 
forces of nature or human beings? Yeah. Messengers. Messengers, exactly. Yes, absolutely. Uh, gravity is an angel. Forces of nature are, now what is gravity? I'm not asking for a definition. <laughs> I wouldn't <laughs> understand if she gave it to me. But gravity is a, we'll call it a law of nature, okay? Um, objects having mass attract other objects having mass. Now that's the way God runs the world, through these laws of nature. And uh, angels are simply a, a we call it a mythic term to express the idea that God runs the world, not through intermediaries, God forbid, but through laws. And that's what angels are. Now, a lot of people get upset. Now, first of all, let me point out something I came across not too long ago. The word angel doesn't show up in the Mishnah at all. Hmm. I can see the other Ben is burning through the entire Mishnahic text. No, no, no. I'm just trying to, no, not even close. I wish I knew that much. No, I'm just trying to see if anything. It's, it's of no relevance, but it's interesting in any event. Um, in, in the Torah, until you get to the very last texts, like uh, Daniel Bahule, angels are messengers. And no more and no less. They don't have halos and wings, they don't play violins up in heaven or whatever. It's a term, and the term is often used for messengers, human messengers uh, in the Torah. Uh, so they later on became associated with various ideas of actual intermediaries, and then they were given names, Gabriel and Michael, and then you have intermediaries. The Gemara talks about Metatron, who is like the scribe, the heavenly scribe. Heavenly scribe who also has an important role to play in the divine economy. This is the kind of stuff that Rambam would have gone crazy. He never, to the best of my recollection, he never mentions the name Metatron even once, who became very important afterwards in the Kabbalah. Of course. So, but you could say to me, but Kelder, Rambam believes in the existence of separate intellects, Skalim Niftalim, which make the world go round. Now, that's true, he does. But he doesn't think that they have um, agency. He doesn't think they actually do anything. And he believes in the existence of these separate intellects, which he says is the, is the philosophical term for what Chazal call angels, okay? But these are scientific entities, which are necessary to explain the way the world works. If he could come up with an explanation for the heavenly bodies, the way they roll around up there, without the separate entities, you would have no problem with it. But in this case, he's talking about medieval science. This is not medieval religion. Look, the cosmos of the Rambam, something else he was wrong about, right? The earth stands at the center of the universe. And then it's surrounded by concentric, transparent globes. In each globe, there is a heavenly body, what we call planets. And then there is a globe surrounding everything in which there are points of light, kochavim, 
and planets are called Kochabe Lechet because they're moving against the background of the stars. Now, the, the scientists, the astronomers and uh, astrophysicists of the Middle Ages sought to understand how do we account for these movements. And so they talked in terms of the heavenly bodies had associated with each one an intellect, which itself sought to be like the intellect above it. I don't want to go into further detail here because it's really obviously nonsense. But when Rambam adopts all this, he's adopting the best science of his day. And so what he does is by saying that when the philosophers or astrophysicists of my day talk about Schalim Nibdalim, and the rabbis of the Talmud talk about angels, or the Torah talks about angels, well, sorry, the rabbis didn't talk about angels, they're talking about the same thing. In other words, he is translating rabbinic, midrashic, agadic terms into contemporary science. And this is an important point to remember. Rambam was wrong. Along with everybody else. He wasn't uniquely wrong, but his physics is not correct. And that's a very serious problem as he connected so many things to his view, scientific view of the world. Now I'll give you a lecture. What, what I haven't been doing till this point. <laughs> Anyone who looks to the Rambam for answers, I think is making a big mistake. Rambam's importance is as a model. Correct. Exactly. Yes. The structure. Yeah, well, the, the, the idea that we are given brains to use. Now, he used his brain to the greatest extent he could in his day. Look, he says about Chazal, the rabbinic sages, when they talk about natural entities, they were not talking as transmitters of the tradition. They were talking about the science of their day. Right. And they were also wrong, you know. But and they were wrong. The problem yes. is today in the, the whole Das Torah mentality in, in, the, in the Jewish world is like, like every statement of Hazal has to be true, and even their incorrect signs, it has to be reinterpreted as mashal, and and it's just like so much apologetics. But in reality, our misorah is only in halacha. That's it. Exactly, and that Rambam would be a hundred in cases where he needs the look in his Hilchot uh, He relies upon contemporary astronomers to tell you how to figure out when Rosh Chodesh, the new moon, becomes, and he would think it would be full. I think Rambam would think anybody who goes to his writings today to, to look for medical uh, advice would be an idiot. Yeah. Go see a physician. You know, science, medical, medical science may not be perfect, but it's improved in the last 800 years. Um, can I go on to this point? Please. I once heard a lecture by a prominent Chabadnik who's a professor of engineering at Ben-Gurion University. Luckily, I don't remember his name because we're about to make fun of him. <laughs> He said something which blew my mind. He said the Rambam wrote the Mishnah Torah Baruch Hakodesh, divine spirit, divine inspiration. Therefore, everything he writes about the nature of the physical universe has to be true. Oh gosh! And therefore, we have to believe that the Earth stands at the center of the cosmos, doesn't move. We have to replace gravity with the doctrine of natural place, etc., 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 etc. So I said to myself, okay, that was the Chabad view of Rambam. Is that Rambam's view of Rambam? And this guy gave me a lot. He really promoted my career because out of that came half a dozen articles and at least one book where I argued that that was not the Rambam's Rambam. Rambam thought, as you guys said, scientific terms, you go with the best science of the day. Now he knew that he was, 
he was a he believed in the, the prospect of scientific progress. I don't think he dreamed of Einstein, and certainly not of post-Einstein physics, whatever that is. Okay, but he certainly would have no problem with Newton. Mm -hmm. um, so we live in a more complicated world than he did. First of all, it's a lot bigger. <laughs> and I think that the Rambam would appreciate being proven wrong on certain things. The Rambam he says that all the time. Yes. If you think I made a mistake, tell me. Yes, even do me a favor. Don't yeah. don't treat me as some kind of holy text. I want to be told if I made a mistake. Exactly. And he's, he revises his work all the time. And in Guide of the Perplexed 222, I think it is, where he talks about there's a tremendous perplexity between the theory of the heavenly bodies and what astronomy shows. And he says, someday the problem will be solved. He acknowledges that this is a contradiction between what Aristotle thought should be the case and what their, their observations show us. And someday, God willing, we'll figure it out. So he clearly was aware of the fact that there is progress in science. Not the way we know of it, but, you know, we're different. We live in a different world. I think also a mistake a lot of people make is they'll say Rambam was an Aristotelian. And I would go, you know, towards your point that that was the best um, logical, yeah. logical system in its time. And he used that as kind of like to see... To, to, as a framework to like understand that the Torah and reason can go together. However, he disagrees with Aristotle on major issues. Absolutely. And, yeah. And, and um, it, he wasn't an Aristotelian in that sense, because he's, he's just using like, if there was a better system in the time, he would have used something else. Um, so. Yeah. And also your, your, not readers, your audience should know that his Aristotelianism was not Aristotle's Aristotelianism. Right. Reflected through a lot of Neoplatonic texts. And it's not at least like the point that interests guys like me. But yeah. as my wife will tell you, I can be a nudic and I want to be precise about this. So he he was he thought he was an Aristotelian. Right. Fair enough. Yes, absolutely. So and and the last thing related to angels, we want to talk about demons because demons are. Oi! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Important point, the Gra, from whose brother my wife is descended. So you'll never hear any bad things oh, about wow. the Gra in this house. Nice. <laughs> He's not one of my wife is right. <laughs> That's a good yuchus right there. Yeah, right there. <laughs> uh, in any event, the Gra said the Rambam denied the existence of demons because he was misled by accursed philosophy. Yeah. But Ghazal hit him on the head by talking about demons all the time. <laughs> so this is an explicit gra in his uh, in the, where he wrote. He's writing on the on the Shulchan Aruch. You can, if you want, I'll send you the text. It's not hard to find. In any event, the gra was wrong on two counts. He was wrong because Rambam never actually does deny the existence of demons. That was a mistake. That uh, what's his name? The second translator of the guide into Hebrew, the poet, oh. uh, Ibn Tibon's translation is the one that was largely used, and the other translation, I can't recall the name of, uh, it'll come to me later on tonight, and I'll call you and wake you in the middle of the night to tell you. Um, his translation mistranslates a word from the Arabic into demon. Okay? So it's not as if the Gra 
had no basis. It became customary afterwards. Uh, but the second mistake was to think that the Rambam would have believed in demons. Hmm. Uh, and I want to tell you something about this. The, one of the beautiful things about this demon business. I don't remember if this was the Kotzker or Rabbi Nachman and Bratzlov. One of the one of those two. I think it was one of those two. Says, how is it possible for the Rambam to deny the existence of demons? He says, Chazal is full of discussions of demons. Ancient Jewish mysticism and magic are full of it. So he says it's simple. There used to be demons. Yes. Rambam Paskin that there are no demons and therefore they disappeared from the universe. That's the Kutzker. It's no. not Rabbi Nachman. Okay. Yeah, I don't remember who it was, but yeah, I love that's it. That's the Kutzker. It's amazing. In any event, I assume he was kidding. <laughs> I don't think he was. Um, no, no, he yeah, wasn't he kidding. Wasn't. That's no. the sad part. <laughs> he, he, he should have been kidding. Yeah. Yeah, so look, demons are, are worse than angels. You know, you can probably find an excuse for angels. Uh, you can certainly find the word in the Torah, right? Right. Uh, anytime something that looks like a demon shows up, it's negative. It's, you know, it's something that the idolaters believe in. Uh, it's a big function in ancient Jewish magic. Huge issue. Um, but one which Rambam, uh, here we go, here again, his subtlety. He just ignores this kind of stuff. Yeah. He doesn't want to draw attention to it, I think. I've seen, I've seen actually, I think it's in the Tauger edition. I think it's a Chabad uh, translation yeah. of Rambam, where when the Rambam says there's no such thing as magic, they put in parentheses, they insert or black. Magic. Black magic. Yeah. Like as oh, if, really? as, as if to say, yeah. no, magic yeah. is real, just, just not black magic. You know, so look when the Rambam Rambam says that anyone who believes in magic is basically a fool, he's calling Ramban a fool. No, you know that's not polite. I mean, he didn't know about the Ramban. Right, he was impressed with the Ramban's learning, etc. And the Ramban defended him without agreeing with his views, basically at all. But yeah, he he says explicitly that at the end of Hilchot of Ozora Perik, I don't remember the bit, the Gimli Gadalas, the last halacha there. It's quite explicit. Um, but Rabbi Tugar also, you know the, the halacha where the Rambam says that any Jew who has a mezuzah on his doorway and is uh, wrapped up in talit and tefillin uh, is protected by angels. Yep. These angels are the mezuzah and the tefillin and the talit. Rabbi Duker says, no, when you wear talit and tefillin and wear a mezuzah, you create angels which protect you in his commentary, in his parish on the commentary on that text. That's why people should learn the Makbili edition. Mm. <laughs> Very careful. In general, the, 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 one of my favorite hobbies is to collect places where the Rambam's Mishnah Torah has been let me start like this, okay? This is backing up a little bit. You guys know that Shakespeare's plays were translated into Yiddish? I do. Yeah. Sometime in the 19th century. And the story is that the title page says the plays of William Shakespeare are teicht und verbessert, which means translated and improved. Oh. Mm. Now, this became an expression in contemporary modern Hebrew. To say that something is verteicht und verbessert, Yiddish, translated and improved, means you're you're playing games with somebody else's text and, so to speak, improving it. I have two articles uh, discussing the places in which Rambam's texts were sub 
were for titan for Bessard, were translated and improved. Would you send that to us? Because I'd be so fascinated to see that article. Let me make a note. The, the second one hasn't appeared yet, but it will, I hope. Uh, the journal is having trouble, COVID trouble. Huh. I think that article appeared in English as well. I'll send you both the Hebrew and the... Uh, that would be fantastic. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I can send you any... Every I have almost... Most of my books and all of my articles are either available at academia.edu or from me. So not a problem to send them to anybody who wants it. Uh, so yeah, so there are a lot of a lot of examples like that. I mean, the, the last paragraph of the Mishnah Torah is perhaps a very good example where Rambam's words are turned into a kind of particularist messianism, which is not what he wrote and certainly not what he meant. But uh, I will send the... Uh, Fantastic. The first article, which actually already appeared, maybe I'll nudge the guys from the second article, see what happened with it. You know, what's so, what's so um, just to end on the angel topic, what's so fascinating to me about Rambam's view of angels, especially the most prominent one we see in the Torah, which is, which appears in visions, is that it's like, it's such a, it's a system. It's actually a system that you can, it can be applied everywhere and you see it actually play out. Like, for example, he, he explains that it's basically a, uh, it's it's a message that a person receives in in dreamlike state um, that that is always in within the frame of reference of that person something that like it's their subconscious mind but they are right. seeing a projection of how they view reality so for example you know Avraham always sees angels um, of kindness right like who are doing chesed and then mm, and, and yeah or like Yoshua Ben Nun sees a, a warrior a soldier right soldier right and and then like um, um, Yeshayahu, or, or uh, yeah, Yeshayahu sees a man on a throne. It's always like it's always in because he worked in the palace, so it's always it's always something that a person is kind of how they perceive the world. Even Yaakov sees Esav as an as the angel because this whole time in his life he was in the shadow of Esav, and he he had to release that part of himself in order to confront his brother. Um, so that like to me, it's like it it actually adds such a beautiful element it, by demystifying. You know, we're using that word that that element of of uh the story it makes it just makes a lot more sense it's just so much more intuitive even like bill i'm talking to the the, the the talking donkey as a vision hashem is telling him that you are the donkey you are the the ass right <laughs> so, how it, great it, yeah i never thought about that yeah, yeah. that's cool because i'll say the same thing like you said you saw uh it phrased his prophecies in terms of a uh person relative, used to a, a royal court. Um, a lot of the Treyasar, the minor prophets, use agricultural terms because that's what they're used to. This is what you, you you added to it a lot, and it's really very beautiful. Yeah, so... I mean, In general, so Ramam says, prophet, uh, if you see an angel, it's a, if it's a vision of prophecy. It's a vision. It's not because you've been eating magic mushrooms. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's not something which occurs in we shall we say the extra the social world. If Yechezkel and Navi was having this experience of Masemer Kabbalah, the um, the vision of the chariot, people around him would simply say, "What's wrong with that guy? He looks really weird." It's not that there was something out there for everybody to see. It was his private vision. Correct. Uh, but it doesn't mean there wasn't. He, he did. He had an experience. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's, it's an amazing, and and it really like, um, 
the reason why I love it is because it it just it fits. Like I want to just go back to that whole thing on on Bill Am and the talking donkey. Like he hits the donkey. He he hits his he hits the donkey how many times? Three times, right? Corresponding to the three times that Bill Am tried attempted to when he went to sleep to co coerce Hashem into um, cursing the Jewish people. And basically, Hashem is saying, if you take one more step forward, you, there's a sword waiting for you. Basically, you're telling you the donkey is telling him, um, you know. What are you doing? Even you can't see this. Meaning, it's insulting him as a, as a prophet. I know the Gemara explained that he was a great prophet, you know, but but it's really insulting him. Um, and the the Chachamim. This is why I I love what the Rambam does because Chazal, even they are bothered by the fact that there's a talking donkey mm -hmm. because because they have to they have to kind of put it into the category of you know the ten things that Hashem built into creation. Meaning they didn't have the refined understanding of Rambam, of how Rambam built kind of a system around it. Um, and they they kind of had to, they still were bothered by it, the irrational sense of uh, donkeys don't talk. So we have to kind of come up with something that would put it into the category of of rationality. Um, and, yeah, but and Jewish donkeys do talk. <laughs> Most of them are members of the Knesset. Oh, <laughs> nice, nice. Burn. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, and then the, the last uh, point that I wanted to make on this is that, um, you know, people always say, like, why does the Rambam go to such great lengths about, you know, the unity of God, for example? He 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 explains, he describes it in ways that has never been described before. So they're saying, oh, he's a dat yachid, he's adding to the, he's, he's, he's it's not, it's never been like that. But the answer to that is always that the Chazal didn't go into great detail because the kind of idolatry that they were dealing with in their time was like the sticks and stones and statues of the world. Whereas in the Rambam's time, the 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 concept of idolatry became more sophisticated, intellectualized. It required a more refined explanation of what God is and what God is not and what is idolatry. So that I feel like what Rambam is doing in all these cases with angels and, and everything is that he's just giving a more refined understanding to to piggyback off of what Chazal was saying in the terms of their, you know. In refined terminology. Right. In, in their in the context of their time, they, they didn't need to get as refined. Yeah. So that's that's what I want to end makes off. makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Right. So this is the last question, and we feel it's it's, it's probably the most fun. So uh, yeah. take so it away. Some scholars and laymen who have read your books have come away with the impression that your portrayal of Maimonides depicts him as the anti-mystic philosopher. Said differently, your focus on Maimonides, Maimonides' polemics against mysticism implies he did not believe in mysticism in any capacity. Is this character's characterization true? Do you believe that the Rambam completely rejected mysticism in every sense, or that there's a dichotomy of Rambam the philosopher and Rambam the mystic? And unlike uh, Chacham Jose Faur's Homo Mysticus, which presents him as, you know, um, basically, he it shows his connection to Maseh Merkabah tradition. So Rambam is a mystic, in a sense. So if you can clarify that. I can try. Um all to, first of all, I regret the title of the book. I should have called it Maimonides' Disenchanted Universe. But I suggested that to my publisher, and she said, you want to sell any copies? <laughs> it's clickbait. It's clickbait, basically. <laughs> so she, but in any event, it all depends how you define mysticism. That's the question that you guys are raising. Yes. 
If you follow David Melech in Tehillim, assuming he wrote it, uh, the Pasuk says, Ta'amu ure'u kitov Hashem. Taste and see that the Lord is good. I take that to be a very good expression of a kind of mysticism which says you can have a unmediated, direct experience of God. Like you taste something. Taste is of the uh, of the five senses, the one that's hardest to confuse. You can be misled with what you hear, what you see, even what you feel, uh, but it's very hard to mislead your tongue. Mm -hmm. you know, if it's salty, it's salty. If it's bitter, it's bitter. Uh, unless you're sick or something, but if you're if you're healthy, it, it's an immediate sensation. So that's like a mild vision of of mysticism, uh, looking for an experience of, in effect, tasting God. I don't think Rambam thought in those terms. If you think that mysticism is seeking some kind of what the scholars call yurio mystica, i.e., becoming unified with God. Clearly, Rambam rejects that. Even though if we have a we have a mutual friend in the North Shore of the island who's trying to prove it, that's the Rambam's case, but no. What, what, what? Yeah, he was talking about the rabbi who wrote the book. Right? Oh, okay, 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 sorry. Good guy, but wrong on this case. Uh, but if you say, does Rambam believe that everything that's true can be expressed in discursive language? I would say no. Uh, that philosophy can lead you very, very far, but there are places where you simply have to hope for a kind of illumination. Um, I'm about to give you a silly example. I've been happily married now for 52 years or 53 years. I'm not good at the math. And one of the few things that my wife does which annoys me is she will say something and be right, even though her reasons for it are wrong. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> Makes me crazy. But she really has an intuitive take that is almost always correct. Now, I think that you have to be foolish to deny that kind of thing. I think that we can reach a stage of intuitive understanding which cannot be expressed clearly in language. Ramam says this. I'm not giving him words that uh, that I'm making up. Uh, the whole point of teaching Maseh Merkava to one student, and only one student, Shemevin Me'atzmo, understands by himself, is in effect to show him the way, and either he makes the leap or he doesn't make the leap. Right. And what he, what he leaps to is a deeper understanding. It's not, a, but even his understanding or her understanding is not one they can express discursively in language. So in that sense, I think Ramam was a mystic. And that makes, you know, that satisfies your desire for Maimonidean mysticism. Yeah. Happy with it. So you agree with Faur on, on this? Yeah, yeah. I, I, Jose Faur was a very smart man. Uh, and, and he is one of the few people who read the Maranibuchim in Arabic only. Yeah. And against the background of the world that Rambam, that Rambam lived in. I always like to tell my students, one of the reasons I like Rambam is that he's like me. He wrote in, he wrote in Hebrew, but he was thinking in Arabic. Huh. I spend my life here writing and teaching in Hebrew, but speaking in English. Yeah. Mm 
But there are a lot of places where, not just me, people who know can show you where Rambam's Hebrew reflects the Arabic he was thinking in. Mm -hmm. The very first sentence of the Mishneh Torah, the very last sentence of the Mishneh Torah, have the same Arabic expression, Yesham. And there are many others. So that Fawar um, didn't have that problem. He read the Mordemuchim in the original Arabic before he got to, I don't know if he ever read it in any kind, any translation. He probably did, but he didn't have to. So he was a very smart, very smart and very learned man. He had his own uh, Gassim, if I'm allowed to speak in that language about a guy like Fawar who was a Sfardito horn. But uh, <laughs> aside from that, this on this case, I think he's 100% right. Look, Rambam tells us, I, we were talking about this before the, uh, the session started. It's something I heard from Jonathan Sachs, all of us, Shalom. In chapter 51 of part three of the guide, Rambam, in effect, is trying to lead us in a series of what we'd call today spiritual practices. And Rabbi Sachs told me once that the whole point of the, of the Moran Hukim, the guide of the perplexed, is to teach you how to say Kriyat Shema, how to say the Shema Israel. Because that chapter of the guide is all about the proper way to say Shema Yisrael. Uh, but it involves an awful lot of physics and metaphysics, etc. But it really struck me that Rabbi Sachs was right. Uh, Ramam wants us, to the extent possible, to learn how to say Shema properly. That was his life goal. Mm -hmm. So, and I think that, if you want to call that mysticism, fine with me. I mean, but we, the, the issue here is really how you define the term, not what Rambam felt. Now, there are plenty of scholars. Uh, David Blumenthal of Emory University, for example, strongly emphasizes the mystical aspects of Rambam's uh, views. Uh, and he does it through the, through the analysis of language in those chapters, the last three chapters of the Guide of the Perplexed, arguing that there's a lot of uh, Sufi language there. Uh, and it cannot be denied that Rambam's descendants and followers were not Maimonidians <laughs> in the sense that they were strongly impacted by uh, contemporary Islamic mysticism, mm -hmm. including his own son, Rabbi Avram, right. who yep. was certainly a rationalist, but was really impressed by a lot of what he saw around him in the, among Muslim mystics. Uh, so what... Also, what, so what I, what I wanted to actually get back to with Homo Mysticus um, of, of Chacham Fa'ur is the idea that Ma'asem uh, Kaba, as we see in the Talmud and any references to it, like you said, it's a Rebbe to student and the, and the student would have to, it would be a subjective, his subjective understanding of a certain idea and how he would tell it over would determine whether or not he was receiving uh, the message properly. And, exactly. So so why why, how this, I want people to understand that this mystical uh, tradition that the Rambam is referring to is vastly different than the Kabbalistic tradition, which oh, is, is in a, it's an objective view of the world, and it tries to define God, um, especially later on as Kabbalah becomes more systematized, like in the Lurianic tradition, yeah. um, it becomes almost like uh, like Gnosticism 2.0. Yeah, so, that's a very good point. Yeah, I mean... Uh, what we call Kabbalah today, and ever since the Ari and before the Ari, I really know very little about it. Uh, um, is so dramatically opposed to Rambam, it's hard to believe that the Rambam and 
founders of Kabbalah, just a minute, Julian, founders of Kabbalah were in this state, uh, because you know, the, the, all this discussion of the Sefirot as being in effect part of God or not part of God, um, <laughs> the idea that behind the God we can communicate with is the Ain Sof, uh, all this is to simply introduce non-monotheistic elements into Judaism according to Rambam. Complex unity. They're creating yeah, a well, complex. Take up your mind. Complex or unity. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. yeah. Yeah. Rambam didn't play games. Mm -hmm. So for him, if you weren't willing to really talk about divine unity per se, you were in another yeah. another game. You weren't in the Jewish game. Um, and certainly, you mentioned theurgy before. Certainly, nothing we do influences God. That's idolatry. Yeah. Another form of, before we go, just one other point I want to make about the theurgical uh, side is of, of this mystical tradition called uh, post-Zoharic Kabbalah is the idea that's developed since the, since the Ari and Hasidut is panentheism. The idea that, you know, God is imbued in all things and there's different, that, that means that there's different objects, people, places that, have a certain degree of divinity in them and that we you know we have to raise the sparks of kedusha out of those things like reunite reunite let's say the the shekhinah with the the kucha brichu shekhinte right the we're 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 kind of we are in charge of bringing those things back together god is kind making of a prisoner god of his whole again yes making god whole again and people today don't seem to have a problem with the idea that you know, okay, so the, so it's pantheism. So there's God. They don't see the connection between you know the world that the, the Torah is trying to go against, which is you know believing that again, just like idolatry and in, in the pagan world, there wasn't. They didn't believe that that their God was the only God. They believed in many many gods, and some gods were more powerful than others. And there was degrees of divinity expressed throughout nature. nature. Yeah. And we have and and by do by serving those idols, we're kind of raising the sparks. It's it's almost the same thing. Uh, don't have to convince me. <laughs> yeah. So, Absolutely not. Yeah, yeah. I think Rambam sought to purify Judaism and failed. Right. Yes. People like you are doing the job. We hope to be even. Uh, we can only small... do what we can do, our own small yeah. part. That's it. Yeah. And you as well. So, what, we want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. We it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, Thank you. and we, we, we hope to do that. this again. We have a lot more to talk about with you. So. With great pleasure. All right. Professor Shavuotov. Thank you. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for tuning into the Judaism Demystified podcast. We really appreciate all your support and your feedback. If you want to help us grow the podcast, Keep spreading the word, share it with your friends, family, or whoever you think would be interested. We also opened a Patreon, so you can become a patron, contribute any small amount you'd like, which would really help us grow the show. Um, our Patreon is www.patreon.com Judaism. Pretty easy to remember. Thank you again, and we hope to keep putting out great shows for you guys.